morning, church. It is once again good to be here with you. I want to begin by simply sharing a couple stories behind a couple photographs that illustrate where we're headed in our series in John. First one took place on February the 23rd of 1945. The United States Marines were ascending in a great battle to the crest of Mount Subarachi on the island of Iwo Jima. And many of you will, uh, uh, will remember an incredible, iconic photograph that was taken by Joe Rosenthal. That wasn't the first picture when the Marines first ascended to the peak of that hill. A, a U.S. Marine photographer had taken a picture of a flag that was planted there when they first reached the crest. But several hours later, after more battle, uh, another group of Marines felt it, it, they needed a bigger flag. And so a, a group of uh, 18 Marines and uh, a few uh, Navy corpsmen and a few others ascended to the hill. Joe Rosenthal was an AP photographer at the time and, and saw that group headed up to the top of the hill and captured this incredible iconic photograph that has become a symbol of the great victory there on Iwo Jima. Their mission accomplished so to speak. And yet, the mission was not fully accomplished for those men. Three of the six men photographed in that picture died on Iwo Jima in the continued battles there. There's another photograph that I am not including for you all today, but it was a, another uh, photograph that is etched in your memories, taken by another famous photographer. Uh, many will not know his name. Joe Rosenthal stands out a little bit more. This photographer's name was Alfred Eisenstadt, and uh, he captured a photograph on April the 14th of 1945, uh, what you would think would have made these two people famous, uh, George Mendoza, uh, a Navy a sailor, and Greta Zimmer Friedman. Uh, Mendoza saw Greta uh, in uh, Times Square on August the 14th in 1945, VJ Day. And as that uh, great celebration of the final victory uh, in World War II, the victory over Japan was won, uh, grabbed, uh, George grabbed Greta and planted a big old kiss on her right there in Times Square. And y'all have uh, probably seen that photograph time and again throughout the years. Between those two photographs, there was still a period of time, though the turning point uh, had already taken place, and though ultimately the, uh, the victory was, uh, was pretty well assured for the Allied forces by the time those Marines ascended to the top of uh, Mount Subarachi, there would still be a lot of work to do. Uh, there would still be a lot of battles to fight. There would still be blood that was shed indicated at least by the, those three men in that picture who lost their life. Today we're going to begin our journey in the last section of the Gospel of John. We have divided John out into three uh, or smaller series. The last series that we have just completed was about 13 weeks on the last night of Jesus' life. And that seems incredible but we begin with John chapter 13, verse 1, where Jesus, John says that Jesus knew that his hour had come, and he gathered with his disciples in the upper room to have the Lord's Supper. That's John 13, 1. The next five chapters included uh, 
some description, Jesus beginning to teach there in the upper room, Jesus teaching the disciples as they walked out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so John 13 through John chapter 17 all took place within a few hours from the, the time that they gathered in the upper, upper room, Jesus knowing that the hour had come until he finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18 actually picks up where Jesus enters the garden, but John does not record Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll look at that here in just a moment. So John 18 through verse through chapter 21, the next four chapters are, are going to be a look at G what, what really is Jesus fully accomplishing the mission for which he had come. In fact, I had titled uh, this series, Mission Accomplished, and that's exactly what we see. Now, that's tough, to, tough for us to see. What do you mean mission accomplished? Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to suffer. Jesus is going to go to the cross. The Holy Spirit's not quite going to be here yet. And yet, within this, this text, we're going to see Jesus finally fulfill the purpose for which he came. And that was to go to the cross and die for you and I, only to be resurrected three days later, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. So read with me this text, the beginning of, of, of the end, so to speak. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So you see here, he has gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's entered into the garden. Now, John does not record what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do uh, about some of the things that took place in the garden. Jesus' prayer, one key uh, that, that, that connects this passage also is in the three synoptic gospels, uh, you, you hear Jesus is praying. Now, Father, uh, if there's any way, take this cup from me. So you see uh, Jesus in his flesh struggling with all that was about to take place, not necessarily desiring to go to the cross. John doesn't record that, that struggle that Jesus had there in the garden, but John connects it a little bit later down, a little bit further down. So verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I'm he, Jesus replied. If you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that time, Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword. Am I not the, to drink the cup that the Father has given me? As we walk through this text, uh, I want to walk through it with three different major sections with a few lessons, I believe, that, that we can learn from this. The first one 
is that this point that I, uh, that I launched out with in the introduction, that Jesus knew that his time was near, that his mission was soon to be accomplished. I, I liken this to, to some extent, the Apostle Paul in his last letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul uh, writes to Timothy saying, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is a reserve for me, the crown of righteousness, which the, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Jesus, like Paul, Jesus knew that his time was near. But even more than the apostle Paul, Scripture makes it clear Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to them, went to them. He didn't wait for them to come to him. Jesus went to those who came with torches and weapons and chains and rope. Those who had come to arrest him, Jesus went to them. Why? Because it was his hour. It was his time. It was for this purpose that Jesus had come to earth, and he knew it. I want you to think through that because Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. That's why he, he shed those tears in the garden. That's, that's why he suffered and struggled because he knew the beating that he was about to take. He knew the crown of thorns that was about to be driven into his brow. He knew that he was about to take the lashing of the cat of nine tails from a Roman soldier where his flesh would be stripped from his back. He knew the unfair trial that was coming. He knew the cross that was on the horizon within a few hours. He knew everything that was about to happen to him, and yet he went to them. And notice, Jesus had already made up his mind before that morning that he was going to obey the Father. Certainly, we see a picture of Jesus' struggle in the flesh when he's praying and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. Scripture said he sweat so profusely that it was like drops of blood. And so he, in his flesh, Jesus, the Nazarene, struggled. And yet, He'd already made up his mind. One of the ways that we know he made up his mind is because John tells us that Jesus took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew that Judas could find him. John makes the point. Jesus met his disciples there knowing that Judas, who would betray him, knew the place. Judas knew where they were going to be. And Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen, if he, if he was going to avoid the moment, he would have found another place to go pray. He could have gone to another garden. He could have gone to another spot. But not only did he go where Judas could find him, when he heard Judas and the soldiers and the priests coming toward him, he got up and he approached them. He went to them. His hour had come, and he not only had accepted it, he raced toward it. How is it that Jesus could, could so earnestly, even though in his flesh he was struggling, how is it that he could approach the horrific end that was about to come? I, I think that there's three things here that are instructive to us. First of all, 
Though Jesus knew everything that was about to happen in the next few hours, Jesus had his mind set on eternity. Jesus knew what was beyond the next few hours. Jesus, Jesus knew that though he was going to go through this excruciating pain, this horrible beating, though he was going to be nailed to a cross, he was going to be mocked and spat upon, even though he knew that, he also knew that his father had set time and place and that he kept his focus on eternity. Jesus knew that this was not going to be his end, right? Jesus kept his mind on eternity. I, I had uh, a couple days ago, uh, Kevin uh, Skinner had sent me a message. Now, Kevin is not even supposed to be working yet. He is supposed to be on vacation uh, before he became pastor, started his full ministry there at First Baptist Stockdale. But he texted me, and somebody had reached out to him. They had a... Uh, uh, person in the church who had a, a family member who was, who was near death, and they asked Kevin if he would come. And, and he just shot me a quick text and said, is, is there any specific passage that is very special to you that you'd use in these circumstances? And of course, uh, Kevin doesn't need me to give him direction, but uh, I, I just told him, I said, you know, passage is very meaningful to me that I've used quite a bit. And I know that it's been meaningful to many of the the elderly uh, folks in our church, elderly saints who have struggled, is a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's verses 16 through 18. In that passage, the Apostle Paul has talked about all the struggles that he's already had, and he says these words. He says, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And, and, and that truth, that fact that we can keep our eyes on the horizon and realize that God has created for his children eternal opportunities. He, is, he has given us the, the privilege of eternal life. This world is not our final resting place. And the older I get, the more I realize how short our time is on this earth, whether that be 40 years or 80 years or, or God bless us with 100 years on this earth. Our time on this earth is short in comparison to eternity. And so Paul, who had suffered incredible uh, t uh, amount of suffering. He had been beaten with a cat of nine tails three times by this point. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he'd been beaten with rods. He'd been in prison multiple times. He'd been in three shipwrecks up to this point. And that doesn't include the shipwreck that took place later in his life. So we don't even know all of the suffering for which Paul suffered. And he refers to that as momentary light affliction in comparison to eternity. Well, think about that. Jesus Though he knew he was about to suffer and die, and in his flesh, he prayed that that cup be removed from him, yet he kept his focus on eternity. And when we keep our focus on eternity, it helps us to deal with and to have victory over the things that are temporal. Second, we got to keep our priorities in mind. Jesus had his priority set, his one priority was to fulfill 
the Father's calling. It was to obey his dad. Jesus had no other connections, okay? Jesus was not married. And what I mean by that, Jesus wasn't married. He didn't have children that he was responsible for. He had these disciples whom he had kept, who he had trained, and his priority was simply to fulfill the mission and be obedient to his heavenly Father. His familial connection that he was tied to, his greatest priority was his heavenly Father. And for us to, to, to fulfill what God has called us to in our lives, we need to keep our priorities at the forefront of our mind. Paul warns us about that, or he warns those who are single about this. He says, don't rush to get married, because if you get married, you're going to have other priorities than simply your relationship with the Lord. You're going to have a relationship with your spouse that becomes a priority. If you have children, you've got a relationship with children that becomes a priority. Those are priorities that I have to keep in mind. I, I have a responsibility for, for uh, fulfilling the mission that God's called me to, the ministry that God's called me to, while keeping those priorities in mind. And so it's important for us, if we're going to complete our mission, as Jesus is about to complete his mission, is to keep our priorities in mind. What matters most in my life and not let those fall through the cracks. But third, we've got to keep our mission in mind. And certainly, Jesus' primary mission was to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to die. He came to accept the cross. He came to give up his life so that you and I could have an opportunity at eternal life. That was his mission. That is the purpose for which he came. And Jesus, you see that in this text, uh, when, when you get down to the bottom and Peter's wanting to fight for him, Jesus says, well, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? Not accept the cup for which I've come. Is that what you're, what you're fighting for, Peter? Jesus knew the purpose for which he had come, and he kept his mission in mind. Now, your mission, what the, the ministry that God's called you to, the mission that God has given you, may change over time. Your priorities will pretty well be set but your mission may change. God may call you to fulfill a specific purpose, to complete a specific task, and that mission is important, and, and you are not going to fulfill God's purpose in your life and be able to stand with the Apostle Paul and say, I, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, unless you fulfill the mission that God has given you. And God may give you multiple missions in life. And so that it's different than priorities, but your mission is not going to be completed unless you can focus on what God has called you to. Here's what happens to us. God can give us mission and direction in life, and we get derailed going off all kinds of different directions. It, 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 we have to learn, if we're going to fulfill the mission that God's given us, is to keep that a priority and to keep that in mind. And Jesus could have argued, well, Peter's not well-trained enough. I've still got to do some work with Thomas. There's other discipleship I've got to do here, Father. I, it's not time yet. Yes, it is time. When God says it is time, it's time, right? And so his primary mission was to, to come so that he could die. die on that cross and be raised again to offer us eternal life. If we're going to fulfill our mission in life, we're going to have to keep eternity in mind, keep our priorities in mind, and, and head straight toward the mission that God's called us to complete. 
The second thing that I see in this passage that I want to bring to you, and this is, this is honestly part of my, probably my favorite part out of this text, is Jesus here asserts his deity. This is the seventh time in the Gospel of John that you see Jesus clearly declare that he is God with the language that he uses. Now, a couple of those are, are more obvious and more clear than, than any other. One of them that we looked at in John chapter 8, and I pointed these out as we've walked, walked through the gospel of John. In John 8, you'll remember Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. When he said that, there was no question about the connection that he was making. Now, I understand the CSB that I'm using today, and some of your versions will use, uh, will provide a predicate here to this sentence. And so, it, in, in verse 7, or verse 5 to begin with, when he says, G, he, they ask him, he asks who they're looking for, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to understand who they're looking for. They're looking for a man. They're looking for a carpenter. Jesus was his given name on this earth. Nazareth was a town from which he came. Oftentimes, people would be connected to their town. They'd be connected to their, their business or their job or you know, what it was that they did in, in life. Jesus was often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, the one from Nazareth, right? And so, we're looking for Jesus from Nazareth. They're looking for the man, now, all through the Gospel of John, we've seen, in fact, we've just seen Jesus struggle with his flesh. When Jesus speaks, he doesn't, he, he's not just saying, I'm that guy. Jesus gives them his name, and his name is I am. Jesus here in the Greek says, ego I me, I am. And if you have any question about what that means, look at the response of Judas and those who had come to arrest him. They knew exactly, in fact, I think, beyond their ability, they simply could not stand. Jesus, one more time, for the seventh time in the Gospel of John, here is equating himself with the God of Abraham, the God of his fathers, the God of Moses. This passage comes, this name comes directly from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And as we've walked through John, we haven't gone back to this text. So as we come to the seventh time that Jesus uses that name, I want to remind you. Moses had been in the, in the desert tending sheep for 40 years. He had fled from Egypt after being responsible for killing an Egyptian. He's out in the desert and God has heard the cries of his people for deliverance. And the scripture says... In Exodus chapter 3, I'll begin in verse 13. Uh, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. I don't think there's any question in, in how John constructed this and what Jesus said. When they came seeking the man, Jesus of Nazareth, he once again declared, I am. Jesus is God. 
He said it time and again. You can't get past in the Gospel of John that he is one with the Father. John began his Gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, in this simple statement, gave them his name. I am. They fell back when they, Jesus told them, I am. They stepped back and they fell to the ground. And then Jesus softened it for them. He, he says, uh, Scripture says, he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, I told you I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. I want you to understand that Jesus at this moment, one last time, declared, I am. He's God. My mind cannot fully comprehend the Trinity any, any more than, than anyone else's. I simply accept God's word for what it says and what it declares, that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus asserts his deity in one other way in this text, and it's this beautiful picture that reminds us that Jesus did not have his life taken from him. In, uh, as he turns himself over to them, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am. Matthew, in this story, records uh, a little bit more here because he looks at him and he says, why do you come after me with swords and, 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 and weapons when I've taught in the marketplace and I've taught in the temple on multiple occasions? And he says, do you not understand that at this very moment, I could ask my father, and he would send 12 legions of angels. I had to look up what a legion is, because I can't remember all of those things. A legion is 6,000. 12 legions to the great I am, coming to Jesus, had any hope of forcibly taking his life. And I want you to see the audacity of that because it, it cannot, it doesn't even compute. I don't know how many came with Judas. I don't care if it was 15, 20. I don't care. He didn't bring 100,000 with him. Whatever group Judas brought with him to arrest Jesus in that moment is inadequate to take Jesus. Jesus surrendered his life. He laid down his life for you and for me. And that leads us to that next point. They didn't take his life. He surrendered it. Jesus came for that purpose. That was his mission. And at that moment, he laid down his life. Jesus is our ultimate picture of the humble sacrifice. The apostle Peter saw it firsthand. And so later on when Peter was trying to teach his church, give them some instruction on, on how we need to learn to, 
to submit when it comes time to submit, for husbands to submit to their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. So husbands lay down what they want to do what's best for their, their spouse, their wife, and, and a wife to lay down her life to do what's best for her husband. And he teaches in that same context how leaders in the church should submit and lay down their lives for their church, to serve their church. And he also teaches how 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 sheep, the flock, should lay down their life and surrender to, to, to take care of their pastors. In that same passage, in that same book, in, in First Peter, he talks about how, how we should function as employee or employees, not having to have it our way and not putting ourselves first. In the middle of that, Jesus, or Peter uses this example, and he says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the judge who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, so that having died to our sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Peter points back to this and says, this is how you and I have been called to live, to follow Jesus' example. Now, Peter wrote that. The same Peter who in our text today pulled out the sword and chopped off Malchus's ear. He drew his sword and he, he chopped off the servant of the high priest's ear. That same Peter who had just said the night before, I'm going to stand up, I'll do anything for you. We know what happens. Peter doesn't know it yet. But the next hour or so, Peter denies that he even knew Jesus. And so here you have Peter draw his sword, ready to fight this fight. But I want you to hear what Jesus, is tell, uh, Jesus tells him. Put down your sword. Am I not going to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus had come to a place that this was not Peter's battle to fight. Jesus still had, in fact, Jesus had already made the decision. He, really, the battle was over for Jesus when he accepted the cup, okay? He, he, had, he, had, he had moved forward at that point. So, Peter, this is not your battle. In fact, Peter did not even fully understand the nature of the battle. Jesus was about to, to step into a spiritual battle that there's no way Peter could have fully understood. One of the, the, the last lesson, one of the last lessons that I want us church to take from this passage is sometimes God calls us to put down our sword. See, Oftentimes, we see things that we feel like are unfair, and, and, and we, in our self-righteous judgment, we want to stand up and we want to fight that battle. And I think oftentimes, God looks at us and says, it's not your battle to fight. How many times have we had this sense that we want to make it right? We want to get revenge either, either on our behalf or on the behalf of somebody in our family or, or on, on uh, someone else's behalf. This is not right. This is not righteous. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to fight. And it's not our battle to fight. And God's Word says it's not yours to seek revenge. You need to trust me. And how many times do we maybe just simply misunderstand 
We don't, we don't have all of the information. Peter, Peter did not know everything that Jesus knew. Not only did Peter not know the unfair trial was about to take place, Peter did not understand, he did not know the beatings that Jesus was about to accept, but Peter also did not know that a couple of days later, Jesus was going to be raised again. Jesus had tried to teach him. Jesus had tried to help him understand, but in all of that teaching, all that training, all that discipleship, the disciples still weren't there yet. They were struggling. They didn't have it. So sometimes we go out on our own to fight a battle, to puff our chest out when it's not our battle to fight or we don't have all the information. Jesus knew what was about to happen, and he tells Peter, Put your sword down. Now, there's a tidbit I love here about this, uh, about this passage, and some of you will remember this from the story. Only one of the three uh, or four gospel writers tell us that Jesus reached down and picked that ear back up and healed Malchus's ear. Uh, Luke, the physician, is the one who includes that tidbit uh, in his recording of, uh, of this event. But I want you to see something here. Because sometimes we, get to, we, we think that we're right, and we have to have it our way. We want things to be done our way. And when we think we're right, sometimes we will push it to the end to get our way. Right now, and I've struggled with this over the three decades of my pastoral ministry and denominational life. Years ago, 40, 50 years ago, there was a real struggle among the Southern Baptist churches. Now, there is no Southern Baptist church. Y'all understand that. Each Southern Baptist church is autonomous. We stand on our own. But among the convention, in our seminaries, there were actually professors who did not believe, did not believe in some of the miracles. They did not hold to the authority and inerrancy of God's Word. And so, it was a battle that needed to be fought. There was some uh, strategic things that needed to take place. We, we did not need a guy teaching in seminary that did not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he rose again, okay? And so, that battle needed to take place. But there comes a point where sometimes those who are great in the battle, in the war, are not necessarily great leaders in peacetime, and you need to put down your swords. Because that, that line has to be drawn somewhere. What if one of the staff members in your church doesn't agree with your theology on the end times, maybe? Hey, you believe one thing about the end times, this person believes something else. They're both looking at Scripture. They're both making that argument from Scripture. Is that okay? Well, well what if that staff member believes something different about alcohol? You're a teetotaler. That person's not. Or whatever that happens to be, a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a leader in your church, at what point do you say, all right, we all have to agree or we're not going to be able to be a part of the same body or we're not going to be all, all able to get along? Somewhere a decision has to be made. I'd suggest that there are some things that, well, if we're going to work together, we all need to believe that Jesus died, rose again, shed his blood for our sins, and we'd have everlasting life. But I don't think that we have to agree on everything. Because here's the bottom line. If I start cutting everybody out of my circle that doesn't agree with me on everything, I'm going to be left with one person in that circle. And I've told Susan that sometimes I don't even agree with myself. So then what am I going to do? Isn't that the truth? But we have to make a decision that... that Sometimes it's time to put down the sword because it's not our place, it's not our battle, it's not our war. We just need to trust the Lord with it. Now, ultimately, 
the most important picture that we have here is Jesus understood what that cup meant. For him to drink that cup meant an untold amount of suffering for the next several hours for him. He also knew that it meant that there was going to come a point where the sins of the world were going to be placed on his shoulders. And his father was going to look away and he was going to die. But he accepted that cup because he knew had he not, you and I would not have the hope of everlasting life. The hope that I have of eternal life rests on the fact that God sent his son to die for me. And if I put my faith and trust in him, I could have everlasting life. Jesus knew the consequences. And he understood the alternatives. He had his mind on eternity. He had his mind on the mission the Father had called him to. But he died a horrible death on the cross for you and for me, that we could have hope, that we could have life. So I'd ask you, are you in that place where the end, your end has already been written? If you made that decision that you're going to put your faith and trust in Christ, you, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that if you were to take your last breath this day, you're going to wake up in his presence because you are trusting the one and only one who died and rose again. If so, you know the end of your story. You know where it's headed. If you have not, I want to encourage you to make this the day. Make this the day. The time that you decide that I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to trust him and I'm going to follow him. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.